Thank you, Aaron. <laughs> All right. Well, hey, it is, it is good to be with you guys. I have not gotten over how sweet it is to worship in person, to be honest. And frankly, this is my first time to uh, preach here in West Philly uh, since we opened up the building. And uh, from this pulpit, man, this pulpit makes, this is a new pulpit, makes me want to just preach and preach. But we've got a time constraint. I got to get to Center City after this. So perhaps you're, you have a sigh of relief hearing that. But in any case, uh, it is so good to be with you all. And uh, even just to hear your voices as we sing, you know, part of the, the truths of worship is that we not only sing to God, but we sing to one another. Um, there's something special and powerful about hearing your brothers and sisters join in singing the truths of who God is to remind your own soul and strengthen your own soul in those very truths. And so uh, as we come to God's word, which is uh, the ultimate source of how God strengthens and feeds us, let's, uh, let's bow our heads together as we study this word. Indeed, Lord, how sweet it is, how pleasant it is when brothers and sisters dwell together in unity. And we can join together like this in your house and as your house because, in fact, you tell us we are living stones that we make up your very dwelling place. Thank you for being in our midst now. Even as we've read from this passage, God, you are a holy God that when your presence descended on the mountain, the people trembled because of your greatness and your holiness. And certainly, you are worthy of our reverential fear and all. And yet we thank you that it is not a, a fear, it's not a terror because of Christ who stood in the gap for us and because of whose life, death, and resurrection on our behalf, we know that in, in the name of Jesus, we can approach your holy throne with confidence, knowing we are accepted, knowing we are heard, knowing we can talk to you face to face as Moses spoke with you, we can come right into your very presence and your ears at our lips. So God, we want to hear from you. We pray that you would speak to us now through your living word. Help us to hear you clearly and help us to respond that we might live lives that reflect your worth and your glory to this world. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, so we come to a pivotal point uh, in the book of Exodus and this series, really. So the first half of the book uh, of Exodus uh, up to chapter 19 describes the deliverance of Israel from Egypt and from their slavery through the mighty acts of God. And then the second half of the book begins to define and describe, define and describe the nature of God's relationship with the people of Israel. In the business world, right, um, contracts are drawn up which define and describe the nature of the relationship between the person who's asking for goods and services and the person who promised to deliver those goods and services, right? There's all kinds of stipulations and understandings and agreements of how this uh, relationship is going to work. There are expectations set forth, and there are also consequences clearly spelled out for breaking that contract. Uh, in a marriage, vows are made between the couple, which define and describe the nature of their relationship, defining and describing how they promise to treat each other and promise to relate to one another. Well, that's kind of what's happening in our passage today between God and Israel. Israel 
again, has been delivered by God from Egypt in dramatic fashion. They journey through the wilderness. They face multiple trials. And then finally, they arrive here at Mount Sinai. And this is the very same place where God appeared to Moses in the burning bush. And God, in fact, at that time promised, I'm going to bring my people out and you're going to worship me here on this very mountain, in this very spot. And that's exactly what's happening. God kept his promise as he always does. And here at Sinai, God's relationship with the people of Israel would now be formally defined and described. In the ancient Near East, it was the common practice among nations for a powerful king called a suzerain to make a treaty with a less powerful ruler called a vassal. And in these treaties, the relationship would be defined and described. Complete loyalty was required by the vassal. The benefits that would be bestowed by the suzerain were all laid out. The rewards and consequences for breaking the treaty were defined and described. And so God chose to relate to his people at this time in history in a way that they would understand, in a a way that was familiar to them. Biblically speaking, this relationship is referred to not as a treaty, but as a covenant. And there are many laws that God would give to his people under this covenant that would define and describe how they were going to relate to one another. But there was one particular set of laws that served as foundational laws. Foundational laws. And all the other laws that would follow were really just applications of those foundational laws. If you think about um, in the United States, we actually have more laws in this country than anyone really knows. It's hard to define an exact number. Nobody really knows what the exact number of laws we have in this country are. For example, and this might surprise you given the problem that it continues to be in this country, but there are actually 20,000 laws, 20,000 laws just about gun ownership and the use of guns. 20,000 laws. But we would say that the Constitution is the fundamental set of laws, the fundamental set of laws that define and describe how our nation is supposed to operate. And those fundamental set of laws, foundational set of laws, are then applied in a myriad of ways. Likewise, the fundamental and foundational laws given by God to describe how the nation was going to relate to him and how they're going to relate to each other is the Ten Commandments. It's the Ten Commandments. Those Ten Commandments are then applied in a myriad of ways. And so for the rest of our summer, what we're going to do is we're going to look at each of the commandments one by one. We're going to study each of them in detail. And one thing that you'll find is that there is a lot more contained in each commandment than you could ever imagine, actually. It is so rich, and we'll see that as we go. So how I'd like to spend the rest of our time this morning is by helping us understand why and how these Ten Commandments apply to us. Why does something that happened so long ago to this specific nation, why does that even apply, and how does it even apply to us, broadly speaking? And then specifically, we're going to unpack the first commandment as well. Okay, and so we're going to do this under these three headings. 
We'll look at the context of the commands, how they operate, how those commands are to operate in our lives, and then the meaning of the first commandment. So one more time, the context of the commands, how they operate, and the meaning of the first command. So it's the acronym C-O-M, context, operate, and meaning, like short for command. I did that to try to help it be memorable. So the context of the commands. Before the commandments are given, this is so important, before God actually declares the Ten Commandments, listen to what he says first in chapter 20, verse 1. He says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. He does not say, if you want me to be your God, if you want to become my people, then obey these rules. No, he says, I am. I am the Lord your God already. You see, God chose to set his love upon Israel not because they had done anything to deserve it, not because they had done anything to earn it. It was simply out of grace. And he delivers them from slavery because they already were his people. He had already set his love upon them. In math or in computer programming, some of you are are studying that, there's something called the order of operations. It's very important. Those steps need to be followed in the right order to get at the right answer. And if you don't follow the order of operations, you're not going to end up with the right, at the right place, at the right solution. Speaking of which, I don't know about you parents, but I feel like they changed math. I'm trying to help my kids, and I'm like, all oh, the order of operations, they're just different. I don't know, maybe I just got dumber, but it feels like they changed math. Anyway, the order of operations matter. It's incredibly important in math, but even more consequentially, The order of operations matters in our relationship with God. The order of operations we see here is grace first, then law. Grace first, then law. The Israelites were supposed to obey not to be loved and win God's grace, but because they already were loved by God's grace. They were to obey not to get into the love of God, but they were to obey out of the love of God, meaning out of the security of already being loved by God and chosen by God, out of that overflow. You see, long before Sinai, God had already graciously initiated a relationship with their forefather, Abraham. God promises to bless Abraham with the descendants as numerous as the stars and the sand on the seashore, and that through them the earth would be blessed, the nations would be blessed. So God's covenant commitment to Israel as a people began long before this moment, long before Sinai. It's just that at Sinai, the covenant relationship was being more clearly defined and described. You see, obedience was the right response to the grace already given. Grace first, then came the law. This was true in God's relationship with Israel, and brothers and sisters, it still remains true today. There are so many people out there, and perhaps even some of you here today visiting perhaps, that assume Christianity is about trying your best to be a really good person, to be a really moral person who follows what the Bible teaches as carefully as possible so that you can receive his grace. 
so that you can win his love, win his approval, salvation. However, that in fact is the exact opposite of the Christian message of what we call the gospel. It's a reversal of the order of operations. That's putting law before grace. Do these things to be loved. And in fact, that's what every other major world religion is essentially teaching. But the central message of Christianity, the gospel, is that God has initiated and shown grace to an undeserving world, sending his son Jesus to live the life we were all supposed to live and failed to live and dying the death, taking the judgment you and I deserved. Simply by believing that, just as Abraham believed God's promises long ago, simply by believing that truth and promise, you are brought into God's love, not because of anything you've done, you simply receive that grace, and once you're in his love, that love can never be lost. That love can never be added to. That love can never be subtracted from because he loves you with a perfect love, a love not based on what you've done, but upon what Christ has done, who perfectly obeyed. That's why we call the gospel good news. It's telling you what happened. News tells you what happened. We don't call the gospel good advice. Here's what you need to do. The gospel's good news. Here's what's been done. Now receive it and live in it. Respond to it. So having established that, let's get even more specific about what role or the, the commands or the laws of God play in our lives, right? Including the Ten Commandments, of course. So how they are to operate. Okay, so three sub-points here. First, the commands of God, or sometimes we refer to it as God's law, God's com- the commands of God are like a map. They're meant to operate like a map in our lives. You see, when you recognize that God has graciously loved you and and laid down his life for you, he initiated it, he did it first, the right response is to love him in return. We love him because he first loved us. And then how do you express love? How do you show God that you love him? Well, he tells us, Jesus says himself in John 14, 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. God has given us commands and they serve as a map to show us what honors him, what pleases him, what a life looks like that brings pleasure to him. It's kind of like if you're familiar with the five love languages, I'm sure many of us are familiar with that. The idea is that in order to love your spouse well, You need to know what speaks to them, what touches their heart, what pleases them. For some people, that's words of affirmation. For some people, that's acts of service. For some people, that's quality time. For other people, uh, that's gifts. For other people, that's touch. My wife happens to be a touch person. No matter how hot it is outside, no matter how large our couch is, and empty it is. She always needs to be like sitting right there with a piece of her on me, no matter how hot it is, because that's how she feels loved. And I do my best to say, okay, (laughs) because this speaks to you, I will do it. Likewise, the commands of God show us what matters to God, what pleases him, 
And so these commands are not random or haphazard. They, in fact, reflect what he values. They reflect his character, what matters to him. Wherever you find a set of rules, whether at your university, a government, a restaurant, whenever there's a set of rules, you can tell what the rule maker values by those rules. When I was growing up, one of our house rules was always be home for dinner, no matter what. No matter what. And I used to like, really fight with my dad over this because I was like, Dad, part of American culture is that you eat at your friend's house. You have dinner at your friend's house. I'd be like, no, no, no. Be home all the time for dinner. And we would fight over this, but the reason was because for him, family was everything. And dinner was to be fiercely protected because that was the time where the family would bond and grow deeper in commitment to one another. Well, the commands of God reflect the values of God. What's important to him? What pleases him? They reveal his character. And because his character is unchanging, the Ten Commandments in particular still apply to us today. Because they reveal that. You see, other aspects of the law that Moses gave from Sinai would not remain binding after Jesus came. There were all kinds of civil laws that uh, explained how they would operate as a nation. There were all kinds of ceremonial laws like the sacrificial system and priesthood and all, and all these things. But the, these things passed away with the coming of Jesus because those things were simply meant to prepare the way and point to Jesus Christ and his work. But the Ten Commandments would remain, what we call the moral law would remain, because that's always on the heart of God. And in fact, what Jesus does on the Sermon on the Mount is he teaches the true intent of the Ten Commandments, which, which the religious leaders had in fact missed and twisted. The fact that the Ten Commandments are written on stone are meant to signify their enduring significance. These commands always matter, no matter what. So again, the law of God, commands of God are meant to serve as a map. Secondly, they are meant to serve as a muzzle. What do we mean by that? Religious or not, the majority of people would agree, if you went out in the street and took a poll, most people would agree, 99.9% would agree that if there were no laws in place and we just said, hey, let's just let everybody live however they want to live and do whatever they want to do, everyone would agree that would be an absolute disaster. An absolute disaster. Sometimes when I'm at Walmart, I'm like, nobody's monitoring anything and the shelves are just, it's an absolute disaster because people just do whatever they want. And as believers, we understand why this is. The Bible teaches us that because humanity chose to reject God, our hearts are now corrupted by sin and prone to evil. The popular advice, just follow your heart. The popular advice, just follow your heart, can in fact prove to be dangerous. Because the fact of the matter is, our hearts are like a broken compass that lead us in all kinds of wrong directions. So God has given us clear commands which outline this is what is right and this is what is wrong. 
This is what is good, and this is what is evil. And along with those clear commands of what is right and what is wrong, there are also very real consequences spelled out for breaking the law. So in this way, the commands of God are meant to have a restraining effect on us, restraining evil in society like a muzzle. Even secular governments, secular governments use the Ten Commandments, at least most of them, as the foundation for the laws of the land. No murder, no theft, you can't commit perjury in court. And there are real consequences, even in secular societies, from breaking those laws. Well, even more so with God. He is the final and ultimate judge who will punish all evil. It's meant to have a restraining effect, knowing that. Yet even for those of us who are believers, who, as we just talked about, you are secure in the love of God, we need to understand that there are, in fact, still consequences we will face for disobedience. Not final judgment, not the loss of God's love, but there are very real consequences. You remember how Israel was given commands not to earn his love, uh, to try and become his people, but as a response uh, to his grace first given? Well, hear what the Lord says to his people in chapter 19, verse 4 to 6. He says, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests, and a holy nation. Now, at first glance, it sounds like the love of God is conditional. You'll be my treasured possession if you do what I say. But as one commentator puts it, I loved how he puts it, so I'm just going to quote him. He says, unilateral divine decision and action made the Israelites the Lord's elect, the objects of his providential care, and the people of his intimate presence. Before them, by promise, he set the enjoyment of those very things that he had done to know themselves as his treasure, to have access to his presence as his priests, and show forth his glory to the world. The significant if with which verse 5 opens relates not to covenant status, but to covenant enjoyment. Their status comes by the acts of God, his gracious act. He did that. Enjoyment would come by their commitment of obedience. It's very important. It's not that obedience to God's commands is what made them his people. As we said, their covenant status was by grace. But obedience is what ensures the enjoyment of the privileges of being in a covenant relationship with God. The enjoyment of the privileges of being in a relationship with God. What do we see in the history of Israel? They fail to obey. They would lose their land. They would be sent into captivity. Through it all, God would still love them. 
God would still ultimately fulfill his promises to them and purposes for them, but in their rebellion, what they lost was the enjoyment of the status that was theirs, the enjoyment of God's intimate presence, the enjoyment and joy of playing the role of being a light to the nations. The same holds true for us. Obedience enables us to enjoy the love and privileges of God that are ours by grace. We didn't earn them. But disobedience diminishes that enjoyment. Our intimacy with God. The joy of being used by him. Living life with a sense of purpose. Perhaps this morning, some of us need to prayerfully consider Spiritually speaking, if you're feeling a deadness, a staleness, a a lukewarmness, I think it's wise to consider, is is there an area of my life, is there a sense in which I'm not taking obedience seriously? It's not always the case that those feelings are because of disobedience, but sometimes they are. And it would be wise for us to prayerfully consider in what ways may my enjoyment of God be being robbed or diminished because I'm refusing to just walk in his ways. And as we heard earlier, the Lord invites you to come back and he will graciously forgive. He wants what's best for you. The commands of God are not meant to stifle you. They're meant to lead to your flourishing. Think about this. Can you imagine what Philadelphia would look like if people actually lived in the Ten Commandments? If they love God, if they had a respect for authority, if there's a valuing of life and the preciousness of life, if people did not lie, steal, commit adultery, and the list goes on. They actually lived in the Ten Commandments. What a beautiful city this would be. It would truly be the city of brotherly love. God's commandments, God's commandments are meant to serve as guardrails to protect us from wrecking our lives. They are not prison bars, but traffic laws. They show us how God designed for life to work best. And when you disregard the maker's design, it leads to breakdown. It leads to disaster. Blow dryers for your hair are not meant for water. There's that big symbol. Do not use this in the bathtub. But if someone were to say, oh, this is so restrictive. So this blow dryer, con air, give me a break. I'm going to shower And immediately, as I'm ending my shower, I'll just start drying my hair. It'd be a disaster. You'd die. The law is meant to show us the way of life and guard us from disaster. But the problem is we all miserably fail at keeping it, which leads to the third use or purpose of God's commands and law. It is a map. It is a muzzle. And it is meant to also be a mirror. We see the map of what a life pleasing to God looks like. 
what is right, what is good, what is evil, and yet when it comes down to it, we fail to live up to the call of the commands. It's like sometimes when I'm driving, and I know I'm probably not the only one that does this, I'm looking at my GPS, and I'm driving, and I'm driving, and it clearly says, exit 34, coming up. One mile, exit 34, 500 yards, and there I am driving. I'm looking at it, I'm looking at it. I don't know what happens. It's like a brain fart, and then I panic in the middle because there's another road behind it, and I'm like, well, maybe it's that road. Ah! And then my wife's like, you just passed it. I'm like, what is wrong with me? I'm such an idiot. It's like, the way is clear, it's obvious. It said it, it had the exit number. Why did I think it would be the next one? The way is obvious, it's clear, and I still miss it. Likewise, we see the way. We see it. It's right in front of us. But we fail to walk in it. And unlike my driving experience, it's not just an accident. It's our hearts are drawn to do the very opposite of what God so often calls us to do. The people promised in chapter 19, 8, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And it wouldn't take long for them to start making an idol, a golden calf, while Moses was still receiving the rest of the law. That's how quickly their hearts turned. As you and I see what is right, what is true, what is good, what is beautiful reflected in the law of God, that very same law is meant to serve as a mirror showing us our inability to do it, to show us our bankruptcy to live as God has called us to live and what it's meant to do by showing us that bankruptcy is not just to leave us there, but to drive us in the arms of our Savior to show us our need for the Savior, the only Savior, Jesus Christ. And for those who run to him and put their trust in him and him alone, he makes you a new creation. He begins to indwell your life with his very spirit and empower you to begin to actually live according to his commands more and more, not perfectly in this life, but making definite, genuine progress until the day comes when you are finally made perfect. There's this uh, wonderful poem, historic poem, that they don't really know who to attribute it to. And it's one of my favorite poems. I've just memorized it because I've read it and just taken it to heart so much. It says, Run, John, run, the law commands, but gives me neither feet nor hands. Better news the gospel brings. It bids me fly and gives me wings. Run, John, run, the law commands. The law commands of God shows me what I'm supposed to do, but gives me neither feet nor hands. It tells me what I'm supposed to be doing. It doesn't give me the power to do it. Better news the gospel brings. It bids me fly. We begin to recognize the standard of righteousness is even higher than we thought. We'll look at this as we go through the commandments. It's not enough to just not murder somebody. Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, even if you hate someone in your heart, you're liable to hell. It's an inward righteousness too. We see the standard, it is even higher than we realized, and yet the gospel bids me fly, but gives me the wings to do so in his power. Finally, let's end by looking at the first of the Ten Commandments. And again, given our time, I'm going to have to expand more on this next week, but let's at least lay some initial groundwork, the meaning of the first command. 
Chapter 20, verse 3, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall have no other gods before me. At first glance, it may may seem as though God is simply asking to be in first place among other gods. No other gods before me as if he's fine with you serving other gods too so long as he's first. Well, that's absolutely not the case. In the original language, the phrase before me means before my face. No other gods before my face, in front of my face. So think of a marriage. Would any spouse in a normal, healthy marriage be okay with saying, have as many lovers as you want as long as I'm your favorite? No other women, no other men before me. But as long as I'm first, I'm good with that. Of course not. Of course not. There should be no competition. And imagine the insult of one spouse bringing another lover into their very house. Oh, this is my lover, by the way. Before their very face. Imagine the insult in that. Likewise, the call of the first commandment is that God and God alone deserves our ultimate devotion, love, and trust. You see, the problem that Israel wrestled with was not the total abandonment of God. What God continually called them out for through his prophets is they tried to worship God and Baal. God and Asherah poles. It's the and that is so very problematic and unacceptable. To serve another God is idolatry. And idolatry was not just Israel's issue or a problem for ancient people. It's so very pervasive today. Even amongst people who would consider themselves irreligious. Early church father, Origen, said it this way. What each one honors before all else, what before all things he admires and loves, this for him is God. Whatever you honor before everything else, whatever you admire and love before anything else, that is actually your God. The great reformer Martin Luther put it this way. Whatever your heart clings to and relies upon, that is your God. So as you can understand, idols can be limitless. There are so many things we can attach our heart's devotion, affection to, to put our trust in. Many, for many, money is what they love most, what they cling to, what they trust. Perhaps for others, it's fame and acclaim. For others, the, the love and approval of another person. And again, some of these things are not bad things in and of themselves, but the problem with idolatry is that we take even good things, good gifts of God, and we treat them as ultimate things. And the problem is because you and I are hardwired, Created to serve God, these other so-called gods cannot ultimately give you 
what you desire. One of my favorite C.S. Lewis, co- Lewis quotes is from Mere Christianity. He says, Most people, if they really have learned to look into their own hearts, would know that they do want and want acutely something that cannot be had in this world. There are all sorts of things in this world that offer to give it to you, but they never quite keep their promise. The longings which arise in us when we first fall in love or first think of some foreign country or first take up some subject that excites us are longings which no marriage, no travel, no learning can really satisfy. I am not now speaking of what would be ordinarily called unsuccessful marriages or holidays or learned careers. I'm speaking of the best possible ones. There was something we have grasped at in that first moment of longing, which just fades away in the reality. I think everyone knows what I mean. The the spouse may be a good spouse, and the hotels and scenery may have been excellent, and chemistry may be a very interesting job, but something has evaded us. And so if I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. Namely, I was made for God, to know God, to be in a relationship with him, to put him first. You see, the command by God to have no other gods is it's valid and it's right because there really are no other gods. And, and at the same time, that command is also for our good because we are hardwired to experience true life, true love, True joy, everlasting, in him and him alone. Trying to do otherwise works against the maker's design, like bringing a blow dryer into the shower. Some marriage vows. I've been doing a lot of marriages this summer. I was like, everyone's waiting. COVID open and boom, 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 marry, marry, marry. It's a great thing. I love being part of it. And some marriage vows include the following phrase, forsaking all other loves. I commit myself to you forsaking all other loves, conveying the idea that your heart will belong to your spouse and your spouse alone. What ultimately moves you and I to forsake all other gods, to forsake all other loves, and give your devotion exclusively and ultimately to the true and living God revealed in the person and work of Jesus Christ. What compels you to forsake all other loves is when you truly, deeply, genuinely take to heart and understand that Jesus Christ loved you so much he chose to be forsaken on your behalf. He wanted you so badly for you to be with him and live in his love and joy forever. That he said, I'll forsake my life so that you can live in my love. And it's that truth that grips your heart in such a way that you gladly say, Lord, I want to love you with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength because you first loved me. I will gladly forsake all other loves because they promise a lot, but they always fail to deliver. May such kindness, may that grace given to you melt our hearts 
and even renew our hearts and our commitment to him this morning. Let's pray. Before we close in song, I just want to give you a moment. As we are gathered here right now in the presence of God, honestly ask yourself, right now, in this moment, in this season in your life, let's be honest because he sees anyway. What do you admire? What do you love most? What is your heart truly clinging to? Truly trusting in over and even above God? Are there areas of disobedience leading to a deadness and dullness, a lack of enjoyment of the covenant privileges that are already yours, but disobedience diminishing that joy? And as I said, those well, as we'll look at more next week, those areas of disobedience often all boil back to idolatry. As Martin Luther wisely and keenly observed, when you break the first commandment, you will break the rest. When you make some other God, you will lie, you will steal, you will kill, you will cheat, you will do whatever it takes to protect the thing that you think is going to give you life when it's actually killing you, when it's actually robbing you of the flourishing God desires. So let's all take a minute, knowing full well, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins, cleanse us from all right unrighteousness. Hear, hear the one who will love you like no one else ever will, even the best of spouses. Hear him call out to you in his love, saying, return to me. Spend a moment with him, and if you're here and you're not a believer, we welcome you, and I ask that you would consider, perhaps, if you are feeling disappointment in your life, you can identify with that C.S. Lewis quote that even the best of things, though you've enjoyed them, something is still missing. There's something you desire that's evading you, and can I just encourage you this morning, perhaps, hear the call of God upon your life. Jesus Christ invites you to give you what your heart desires, life, and to have it to the full, secured simply, not by being earning it or doing, but trusting and believing. Simply receive the gift he's given you. Believe it, and you'll live in it. Lord Jesus, if only we could see, if only we could fully grasp the extent of your great, great love for us. Oh, we would gladly forsake all other loves. But so often we fail to see Jesus. We get deceived, believing something else is going to do what only you can do. We come, we return to you this morning, renewing our covenant commitment to you, knowing that as we confess our sins, you will forgive us, 
and that your heart's desire is for us to experience the joy of knowing you, all the privileges you've given us and secured by grace. You did it, and you want us to live in it. And so now empower us by your spirit to walk in your ways, to see the word as the map, to see your commands as a wise muzzle, and to see your commands as a constant mirror showing us we need you, Jesus. And when we come to you, you indeed forgive, you indeed restore, you indeed meet those you promise. You will find me. You seek me with all your heart. So thank you for first loving us, Lord. We want to love you in return. And we want to live out of that love, displaying it to the world as well. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's rise and close in the song.